All right, well, we are uh, jumping into a new sermon series today called To All God's Beloved in Rome. And so for the next uh, four or five weeks, we will be camped out in the letter to the Romans and confession time. I didn't want to do this. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Romans. Like, if you can have a hierarchy of scripture, which I don't know, is that blasphemy? I don't know. Uh, Romans is not up there with for me, right? Uh, it's confusing. It's complicated. There are traditions that use it in ways that I don't think is the way that it's meant to be used. And so for half a second, I thought, hmm, can we end this narrative lectionary thing early? <laughs> But then I remembered that's why we do the lectionary, so that we get into passages we don't want to do. So uh, for the last few weeks, I have, with all sorts of like fear and trembling, jumped into studying it, and that fear and trembling has turned into excitement. So I am actually quite excited to jump into this for the next few weeks. And if you are like, eh, I don't know about this, maybe you can be excited too. And if you're like, I don't have anything towards Roman. Good. I'm glad. Hopefully you can get excited uh, over the next few weeks about it. Uh, one quick note before we jump in. Uh, for those of you keeping score at home, you'll notice we're using a different Bible translation uh, throughout this series. Uh, we normally use my beloved NRSV. Uh, one of the reasons why I like it is it doesn't make a whole lot of interpretive moves in its translations. But that means that it can often be complicated through a letter like Romans where there's a lot of like ambiguous phrases. Uh, so we're going to be using the Common English Bible, uh, which makes some of these interpretive moves but it's so much clearer, okay? So, again, there's two of you that care about that, but so that you're not asking that question throughout, uh, now you know. All right, uh, so we're going to jump into the intro of this letter, uh, but first let's pause for a word of prayer. Gracious and loving God, uh, we are grateful for this chance to uh, be here this morning. Uh, we're grateful for the gift that is this community, uh, our siblings gathered here uh, together today. God, as we turn now and wrestle with the scriptures, we pause and we acknowledge that your spirit is here among us and we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the way of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Imagine, if you will, uh, that you are transported back in time to the year 1830, right here on this plot of land. The congregation that would eventually be known as First Mennonite is probably still going by the name of Roland Mennonite Church. And you find yourself standing uh, at the front of the doors of this almost five-year-old congregation. We don't really know. We picked 1825 because it felt like a good, clean date. But it's about five years old. The congregation that sits here in this plot of land, Roland Mennonite Church, finds itself uh, about one mile east of a newly incorporated village of Canton, Ohio, something like 1805, I think. And apparently this is a bustling village because just eight years later, this will be reincorporated now as a city and will eventually swallow up what was this neighborhood. Now, as you look around out of the, the front doors of the church, you'll notice maybe just a couple houses, but for the most part, it's sort of this like rolling farmland. And as you turn around, you walk into not a brick building, but a log chapel. You'll notice that most of the people probably bear some sort of like what we might call like an ethnic Mennonite background, right? You'll start talking to people, you'll hear a handful of last names, right? Some Rollins, some Roars, some Hostetlers, some Millers, Troyers, Yoders, you know, the, that whole uh, crew. And as you get to talking to people, you might be struck by just the, the disposition and the, the, the culture that these people inhabit. Um, perhaps a, 
simple people. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean that with like all sort of like respect of people that just are committed to a simple, humble sort of life. Um, people who are maybe uh, known as like the, the quiet in the land, right? Who maybe at this point in time are still living into a bit of like a separatist sort of like we're in the world but not of it sort of posture as they relate to culture. But imagine after worship is over, um, you're rapidly transported back here to the year 2023. And before you get sucked up into this portal, you grab Jacob Rowland, the founding pastor, by the arm. And he now finds himself here in the year 2023. As he stands on the front steps of the church, he looks around and he notices, like, things have changed, right? <laughs> like, this is now a rapidly, like, urbanized neighborhood that is far more diverse than he probably could have ever imagined. Diverse in race and socioeconomic status and education and backgrounds and all sorts of ways. And as he turns to walk into the building, he notices, oh, this isn't the same building. And you inform him, yeah, this is the third building on this plot of land. And he walks in and he sits down for worship and he pays attention to all of the things that are different. He pays attention to the fact that like, we're speaking English instead of German in the worship service. He's acknowledging all of the use of technology in the service. And you reassure him, like, this is actually pretty basic and old school technology. But technology nonetheless, right? He might be struck by like, the vast variety of like, expression of clothing and like, of personality that some even bear markings on their skin, right? And he might pay attention to the fact that like, women are highly involved in the life of our congregation, not just behind the scenes as they always have been, right? But like up front and leading worship and leading in integral roles within our, the life of our church. And he might notice that as he gets to talking to some people that some last names are different. That it's not all from like a Swiss or German background, but there's some Swedish Lutheran involved, like mine own, right? And he might notice that some people didn't grow up in this thing that we call the Mennonite church, but some come from a variety of traditions and have brought that like flavor and diversity here among us. And after worship, you might be real excited. And you go, so Jacob, what'd you think? And I want to assume the best about Jacob, okay? Uh, I assume he was probably a gracious and gentle man. But out of the wide variety of responses, one of them could be, what happened to my church? <laughs> right? I mean, Things are different now than they were 200 years ago. And I think that's to be expected, right? But what about if, like, the time span wasn't 200 years? What if it was, like, five or ten years? Would you expect things to be that different? Uh, would you expect to have this similar sort of knee-jerk, like, emotional, guttural response of, what happened to my church? Because this seems to be the situation that's happening in the backdrop of this Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And by the way, when we say the church in Rome... We probably mean churches in Rome, like groups of like 5 to 25 people meeting in homes. But we say church because it's far easier that way, right? So this seems to be the backdrop of what's happening in the church in Rome. As a quick review, Christianity started out as a movement within Judaism, right? Uh, it was seen as like a, a, a sect within Judaism. It was a, a flavor of Judaism. It was a bunch of Jews who saw Jesus as the Messiah and continued to be very faithful to their Jewish practices as they followed Jesus. Which means that as we fast forward and get to the church in Rome, it was a very Jewish church. Uh, it was led by Jewish people uh, with a few Gentiles, non-Jewish people brought in, living out these very Jewish practices and cultures and customs and rituals as they tried to follow Jesus together. The Gentiles would have had to like, essentially submit to this Jewish way of living as they tried to follow Jesus together. Now, in the year 49, uh, an emperor by the name of Claudius uh, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. 
And the reason for it? Because there was all sorts of infighting among the Jewish people around somebody named Christos, <laughs> Jesus, the Christ. And apparently uh, Claudius just got fed up with all of like, this infighting among them and said, I want all of you out of my city. So you take what was once a very Jewish church with a handful of Gentile people involved with all of their Jewish practices and culture and rhythms and customs and all of these Jewish people now leave. Well, what happens to the church in Rome? It now becomes a Gentile church. And all of these Gentiles who had been practicing these foreign Jewish cultures and customs and rituals and practices now do away with those. And now they begin to live in these Gentile cultures and practices and postures and ways of being as they follow Jesus together. So you fast forward then five or six years, Claudius dies off, and now uh, the, the next emperor allows the Jews to come back to Rome. And they come into their church, and you can imagine, they're like, hey, we're going to catch up with people. And they walk in, and there's nothing that resembles their church. <laughs> and you can imagine them looking around with their jaw on the floor going, what happened to our church? See, this seems to be the backdrop of what's happening in the letter to the Romans. Jew and Gentile um, seem to have like a bit of animosity, a bit of hostility in general towards one another. But then you add this level of um, difference in to the equation. And as they step back in, there's very real tension that exists now within this church. And the, the, the question that seems to be pervasive throughout the letter of Romans is this question of how do we go about being the people of God together? Do we do this in a Jewish way? Or do we do this in a Gentile way? See, the difference that exists now isn't some sort of theoretical time travel of 200 years, but this is like a real-life flesh and blood uh, difference that exists in things like socio-cultural religious practice. <laughs> See, the letter to the Romans isn't some sort of theological treatise written in a vacuum to explore the inner workings of salvation as some have handled it. But it was a real-life letter written to real-life people in a real-life situation trying to figure out how they go about being the people of God together. And so with this as the backdrop, we jump into Romans uh, chapter 1. Romans 1, 1. Here we read, From Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for God's good news. And already at this point, we pause and we acknowledge the introduction of a particular phrase that Paul will repeat time and 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 time again. And that's the phrase, good news. Now, good news comes to us from the English word gospel, right? A very, very Christian word. If you've ever been in a Christian circle for more than a minute, you're probably hearing something about the word gospel. But the word gospel comes from a Greek word, where we, uh, which our New Testament was written in, uh, known as euangelion. Now, this word euangelion would have made sense to both the Jewish and the Gentile imagination, for both people within this group. For the Jews uh, living during this time, their scriptures had now been uh, written in the Greek called the Septuagint. So when they hear the word euangelion, they're thinking of all of these scriptures that use this word euangelion, perhaps including uh, one from Isaiah 52, which reads, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of the messenger who proclaims peace, who brings good news who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God rules. Now in the context of um, the exile, this is this imagery of God ascending God's throne, being God, being Lord, being king over uh, the world. No longer the empire and the, empire, er, and the emperor who uh, 
oppress them oppressively, right? This good news is that God is king and you can live into the life that God has invited you into. But for the Gentile imagination, this also would have made sense because this was also language of the empire. So this word euangelion or gospel or good news would go throughout the land with something with this sort of flavor to it. Good news. Rome has conquered you. If you're a smaller uh, uh, territory, Rome has dominated you, conquered you, and now you're part of Rome. And so the good news is you get to experience her peace. This is what we call the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was a peace by the sword. It was a peace of like, don't act up, and you get to experience all the benefits of being part of the world superpower, right? Not a too unfamiliar story, right? Or we might hear an edict go out throughout the land that said, good news. A Caesar, a new Caesar has taken the throne. A Caesar dies off and there's all sorts of tension around who's going to lead. Good news. A new Caesar has taken the throne and he will save the world. This is what uh, the, the empire would have used this language of good news around. Notice um, some common themes among it, right? There's, there's themes of a king or a leader or a ruler. There's themes of... Um, liberation or deliverance or saving. There's themes of peace. There's themes of belonging to something beyond yourself. And so Paul uses this word that makes sense to both Jew and Gentile. Again, the, the, this group that has hostility between them that makes sense to them. And yet, as we'll see throughout this letter, Paul uses it in a way that subverts their own sort of understandings of it. So Paul continues on here. And he says, God promised this good news about his son ahead of time through the prophets and the holy scriptures. His son was descended from David. He was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based off of the spirit of holiness. The son is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul makes a very strategic move here uh, to now turn his attention towards the Jewish group within this church. And he roots the story of Jesus within the broader story of the Jewish people as a whole. He says that uh, this comes through the prophets of the Holy Scripture. This comes from the line of David. David, David the king, our great king, the one that we celebrate often, like he was one of him. Jesus comes, the Jesus story comes from this Jewish story. And at this point, the Jews are probably like, yes, great, we know this. Like, this is our story. Everybody else has been brought into it. Right, you're elevating us. Good, good move, Paul. Paul goes on, he says, through him we have received God's grace and our appointment to be apostles. This was to bring all Gentiles to faithful obedience for his name's sake. Again, this goes all the way back to their understanding of their father Abraham, that, that Abraham would become this great nation and be a blessing to all nations. All nations would be brought in among the Jewish people of God. We're tracking with you so far, Paul. And then we get to verse 6, and it's like the, that, uh, the, the disc comes to a screeching halt. The, you who are called by Christ Jesus are also included among these Gentiles. Hold up, Paul. Up to this point, you've been talking about the prominence of the Jewish people in this story. You've been talking about Gentiles being included in us. And now you have the audacity to say that we've been included among the Gentiles? This was all good when we were talking about the Jewish people of God and other people being brought in among what it means to be the Jewish people of God. But now you're saying that there's something new that's happening, that we're being invited into some sort of new expression of what it means to be the people of God? Tell, like, recognize that this is beyond this basic question, or this goes beyond the central question of Romans of how do we go about being the people of God together. It speaks to a much more basic and maybe even primal question of like, who are the people of God? Are the Jews the people of God or are the Gentiles now the people of God? 
And I like to imagine Paul getting like a, a sly little smile on his face and leaning in and whispering, yes. <laughs> now let's step out of the Roman world and step back into the Mennonite world for a second. <clears throat> um, I've been a, a, a Mennonite pastor for seven years now, and uh, I love stepping into context and saying that I'm, I am a Mennonite pastor who lives in urban southeast Canton, Ohio, and occasionally I'll make sure that people can see uh, something on my arm here, right? Because I love to see their heads spin, right? <laughs> because there's this weird sort of like confusion around Mennonites, and I think even among Mennonites there's even this confusion, right? And there seems to be sort of this, this question looming among us of like, who is a Mennonite? What is a Mennonite, right? For some, this question comes down to uh, like ethnicity or culture, right? Uh, we, we grew up in this, this family. We grew up in this community, and we lived out these certain practices and cultures and rituals. And to live into this, well, this is what it means to be a Mennonite. For others of us, this is a theologically related question. We didn't grow up in this, right? We were attracted to it for a wide variety of, de- of ideas, like Jesus being like the center of our faith and our understanding. We were drawn to community being core to our life. We were drawn to um, discipleship and like living out, the daily, living out in our daily lives the way of Jesus. We were drawn to peace and justice and reconciliation being central to the gospel. And so you get these two groups of people together and you're trying to live out life together. And guess what? It can be a little messy, right? It can be a little complicated. It can be a little difficult from time to time. Uh, the executive director of Mennonite Church USA uh, has, a, has a really interesting story. Um, he's a, a black man who was an officer in the military and got connected to a Mennonite church and became a pacifist through it and like stepped out of the, the military as a result of it and now is like the executive director of the largest Mennonite denomination in the United States. And at convention a few years ago, uh, he made a, a, a comment, uh, sort of jokingly, and I don't remember it word for word, but it, it was something to the effect of, like, you brought your pure Mennonite theology to us BIPOC folk, black indigenous people of color, and we added all sorts of flavor to it. <laughs> and, like, you walk around convention, and this is true, right? Like, convention is a fairly diverse space now, right? Like, it's still fairly white, but, like, the, the diversity among the white people is far different than I would have assumed 30, 40 years ago. Uh, different experiences and perspectives and um, uh, backgrounds and all sorts of things. And for some, like, as they walk through convention, you can tell, like, they're like, this is awesome. This is what the church was meant to be. But for others, like, you can feel the energy coming from them as they walk around. And they think, what happened to our church? <laughs> And again, I don't mean this in like any sort of disrespect. Like I, I feel the emotional like reaction to this. But I say all of this to suggest that like there's this struggle, this tension that can exist uh, among a, a diverse group of people as they try and live out like what does it mean to be a Mennonite, right? And I think that in a, a similar sort of way that this is a, the same sort of struggle and tension that's existing among the church in Rome as they're trying, again, to live out and wrestle with this question of how do we go about being the people of God together? Now, Paul answers this question uh, with a very simple yet complex idea. Okay? Paul answers this question of how do we go about being the people of God together by saying, Jesus Christ our Lord and his resurrection. It's simple, right? I mean, it, it feels like a Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? But as we'll see in just a second, this is a very, very complex argument that Paul will weave in and out of all throughout Romans. So we're about to get real theoretical here for a second, so just bear with me. 
All right, so Paul does sort of these two uh, movements throughout uh, Romans. The, the first is what we might call uh, the universal becoming the particular. So he zooms out of the story uh, uh, that he finds himself in and starts with this big grand picture of a creator God. A creator God who made the universe, who made the world, who made all people. And yet this creator God, for whatever reason, chose to turn this God's particular attention towards a particular group of people. And invite this particular group of people to live into a particular way of being around a particular kind of law. This is the story of our Old Testament, right? This is the story of God choosing Israel to be the people of God and to live out this way of being. But there's a second stream that Paul will dance into called the particular becoming the universal. The particular group of people with a particular way of being around a particular sort of law becoming expansive and welcoming all people of all nations, of all ethnicities, of all backgrounds into the people of God, to be grafted into this thing called the people of God. Now, as you put these things together, you're like, those are radically different trajectories, right? <laughs> and you can even say, see how, like, perhaps they like, are in, in, even competing with one another. There needs to be some sort of linchpin that holds us together, some sort of bridge that, that connects these two vast streams that Paul dances in and out of. And for Paul, this linchpin is this. It's Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his resurrection. Because for the Jewish story, this makes sense. Because Jesus was this good and faithful Jew. Jesus lived and embodied the very law. The, the, the law he fulfilled the law to the point that when he died, God raised him from the dead as a way of like vindicating him. Or to use the language of Romans, to justify him. To put God's stamp of approval upon him. And through this, he became the king of the Jews. But this also makes sense then to the story of the Gentiles. Because if you go back all the way to the very beginning of Romans, you'll notice Paul says that uh, Jesus became God's son at the moment of his resurrection. This language of sonship has less to do with genealogy as it does like rulership and king and authority. And so at this point of Jesus' resurrection, Again, still very theoretical here. At this point, sin and death ruled over the world. And sin and death do not have like, uh, a claim to one particular ethnicity. <laughs> but they exist over all people. And so at Jesus' resurrection, he kicked sin and death off of its throne and now took their place. And so now Jesus rules over all of humanity, much like sin and death did. And so, Jesus then becomes this link that allows Paul to flow in and out of these two vastly different arguments seamlessly throughout the, the rest of the letter to the Romans. And if this doesn't make any sense to you, welcome to why I didn't want to preach through this thing. <laughs> like, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to, like, figure out what in the world Paul was trying to do here. But again, we come back to the reality that this was a real-life letter written to real-life people, and Paul's trying to do this on the fly. I believe fully inspired by the Spirit of God. But Paul is like, in many ways, I feel like trying to shoot from the hip, trying to like figure out Jesus. And how do we like live into this as the people of God from very different backgrounds and very different practices? How do we do this? And yet he comes back to like, there's something about Jesus being our Lord and there's something about Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, if this just flew over your head, that's okay. Um... Hopefully this will help, because I think much of the letter of Romans, and particularly this introductory, introductory section of Romans, can be boiled down to this. That to embrace Jesus as Lord is to embrace others, especially those who are different, as siblings. 
Because to embrace Jesus as Lord is to say that Jesus becomes like our, our ultimate authority in our life. This is to say then that like things like our culture are not our ultimate authority. Things like our traditions are not our ultimate authority. Things like um, our nationality are not our ultimate authority. And as scandalous as this would be for Paul, a good, faithful first century Jew, this is him saying our law is not our ultimate authority. But Jesus, who fulfilled this law, who embodied it to the fullest, he is now our ultimate authority, and we look to him for how we are to go about living out our life and to be the people of God together. And this means that anybody who embraces Jesus as Lord, we now have to embrace as not an other. No matter how different they are, we embrace them as a sister, a brother, a sibling. Uh, New Testament scholar J.R. Daniel Kirk notes that the good news is not good news if people are not brought in from the outside. It's only good news when it creates a people who are willing to form a unique kind of community. A community that is a foretaste of the eternally diverse, eternally faithful people of God. Is this messy? Is this complicated? Is this difficult? Absolutely. Is this necessary? Absolutely. Like, there's a reason why this is called the good news, right? I mean, think for a second about, like, every sort of act of injustice, every sort of act of violence, every sort of act of prejudice, every sort of act of hate. And what does that boil down to? Like, what's the source of that? I think if you, you, you parse it out far enough, it comes down to me seeing myself as separate from you. Or to put it another way, it comes down to me seeing you as the other. And when I see you as the other, two things emerge. One, you are a threat to be protected against, or a threat to be eliminated, or you become a commodity in which uh, uh, I can, uh, um, uh, a commodity that I can expose for anything that builds me up. But when I claim Jesus as Lord, this means that I'm also embracing everybody else who claims Jesus as Lord, no matter how different they may be. And this means that I don't view you as the other, but I view, I view you now as a sister or as a brother or as a sibling. And this changes just about everything about how we go about our life, especially in a community where we are very, very different, very, very diverse, and have different perspectives on what it means to be faithful to the way of God. That right there, this, this idea of not viewing others as uh, uh, the other, but as sibling, like that right there gives us the power to begin to tap into the love of God, the peace of God, the justice of God, the reconciliation of God right here on earth as it is in heaven. And this right here is the vision of what Paul will refer to elsewhere in the New Testament as the one new humanity that God is forming and creating in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, all of this, this big, grand, robust image, this brings Paul to the end of his introduction where he can say with full confidence, like, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not ashamed of this. Like, I'm not embarrassed by it. Like, I'm willing to say this anywhere, even in public or around people who disagree with me. Why? Because it's God's own power for salvation, for liberation, for deliverance. Paul's not ashamed of this thing because he believes that this is God's own power. Uh, to save us from ourselves and the sin that wants to separate us from others, from God and from creation itself. It's God's own power to save us from uh, death, which separates us from life. Paul's not ashamed of it because he believes that it's God's power to reverse the story of separation and bring us back into this beauty that we call reconciliation. And all of this comes down to this gospel that revolves around this idea of Jesus through his resurrection becoming 
our Lord. And so to embrace Jesus as Lord, then, is to embrace others, especially those who are different, as our siblings. So my friends, nay, my sisters, my brothers, my siblings, may we give ourselves to the Jesus story. And may we commit to the difficult, messy, complicated, complex work of viewing one another, not as others, but as siblings, as we attempt to follow Jesus together. Amen.